Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the now well-entertained Teo Savadia. <laughs> you have been entertained. Am I not entertained? I am super entertained. I saw the D&D movie. Yes. I mean, I can't believe it was all flumps all the time. That was unexpected. I, I mean, the reign of flumps being summoned, couldn't believe it. The Underdark flumps, yes. you know, that everybody was playing a flump. If you've seen the trailers, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe, maybe I, it's that. Sure. Yeah, I imagined it. But um, no, it, I mean, I would say go the, see it. They it confirmed. Was, it was great. Yeah. They confirmed during the movie that next edition will have a flump race, a flump class, a flump subclass, several flump magic items. So <laughs> that's really all the movie yeah. was about. Yeah, and my uh, my Duke women are still oh. in the tournament. Go Devils. Uh, the men had a great season, but have decided to uh, take a little long vacation, which is what we really, I, I wish I could do so. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's very brave of you to wear a Duke shirt after after a loss, but I appreciate your your stick-to-itiveness. That is that is a thing that I've always heard said uh, when I was at school. There, it's like you know, if you lose, the next day you wear your shirt, like a, well, a different shirt because that shirt is unlucky; it needs to be washed. You throw that one in the wash, but you wear another Duke shirt, and and you and I think it's a good mantra for life. You know, like you fail and don't like hide whatever you failed at. Like be be proud of it, keep going. There's always progress. It was a great season, so I have no problem flying the colors. Awesome. But also, our Duke women play tonight, so I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, speaking of horrible failures, we should get on with our podcast. <laughs> and we're going to go right to our listener corner to talk with some of our listeners. The first is Falcon Neil via Patreon. Um, a question for the show. I watched an optimization video where the host was tarn feathering Wizards of the Coast because of the low quality of the playtest document. They weren't complaining about the creative ideas or intent. They were complaining about the clarity of the rule text, the playability of the mechanic and unintended and unexpected consequences of the rule update. I commented with partial agreement, saying that this document seemed very raw and not what I'd expected from a broad professional effort going out to tens of thousands of people. If it was a first draft, it was probably fine. But is it actually appropriate to this audience that first drafts are being released and that the rules haven't gone through more of a quality review before we're seeing uh, seeing them to test? Did they have a second set of eyes looking at the text before releasing it? Is Wizards just using the C team of developers for this initial stage and not getting their most experienced people involved till later on? And my answer to that is all play tests are handled differently. I would not say that this is great or terrible. I would say that it is right about on par with what I would be expecting from the play tests that they are engaged in, in terms of their expectations, in terms of the amount of people they have working on it, in terms of the outcome that they're envisioning. I, I think it's probably right on. There are a couple of things here that, that I think are really interesting and, and cool aspects of the question. One is, you know, is, is it a C team of people? So I'd say that anybody at Wizards of the Coast is not a C team member. They're an A team member. Um, you know, even though there are different levels of experience or whatever, I mean, there, there are really good people on there. And, and so, so it's kind of all A team. But um, having worked on many, many projects, right, sometimes someone is 
really great at the concept of it, but not necessarily the wording of it. Um, and there are multiple passes, right? I write things that I think are, are English, and then an editor hits them, <laughs> and suddenly they really do actually mm -hmm. become fantastic English and, and, and rules speak English and things like that. Um, so what, what is likely not happening here, and maybe part of it is that there, there probably is no editorial pass, really. There, I'm sure there are second sets of eyes, but it's not being, there isn't time given to these kinds of playtests usually to make it read really well. Like that's just not part of what you have time for in the process. So it's probably being discussed, it's being played around with, it's looked at by numerous people and it's written up and it goes out to see what we think. And yes, it's going out to tens of thousands, but it's not, and I think fortunately so, being treated as a marketing piece. It's really about getting that feedback back. Mm -hmm. So um, so I don't think the normal number of passes are taking place and, and we are seeing rough takes. And their point is not to say, do we like the wording, but how do we, do, how do we react to the, to the concepts and ideas that are there? Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head there. Would you rather have it take another two weeks and be spell checked and laid out, not spell checked, but edited, laid out nicely, art, all that stuff? Or would you rather get it two weeks sooner and have an extra two weeks to actually use it? And, and so, you know, I will yeah, say I there think. are some things that are in Tasha's that are not my style and they feel wrong to me. It's not that they're mm -hmm. poorly written, but they feel to me like, isn't there a second set of eyes that should have looked at this and said, wait, this isn't, you know, fully balanced or whatever. Uh, but then I'm sure someone would look at something that I like and go, that's weak sauce. Come on. Shouldn't you have looked at that? So some of it is our approach, right? And especially when you get into optimization, <laughs> optimization is almost like it's, it's it, like in magic, the gathering, right? A card is either useless or belongs in your deck. <laughs> and yes, the type of deck you're building matters, but it's like, it's such an on off switch, right? And yet it can be a perfectly good card. It's just not broken, right? Or it doesn't present that advantage you're looking for, but it is great. And, and one could have a lot of fun with it if one were not in a super competitive mindset. But when you are in that kind of competitive optimization mindset, then everything's either clear take or discarded, right? And that, that's, that's sort of an unfair standard. It's not the standard that the game itself needs to rise to. Right. And we'll talk more about the play test itself when we review what Jeremy Crawford said about the play test feedback that they've been getting. And we'll get a little bit more into that. We also heard from shadow mains, Jason C via YouTube. I'm glad to see wizards is doing some how to DM things. I would really love to see the next dungeon masters guide be more how to DM than just here's a few extra rules, almost like the essay books, like your best game ever, etc. And I agree to a point because we have to keep in mind that there is no such thing as the perfect Dungeon Master's Guide. If you make it a how-to DM book, you are going to have a lot more newcomers able to use the book and learn how to DM. And you will have experienced Dungeon Masters saying, this is the worst Dungeon Master's Guide ever. They told me everything I already know or everything that they think they already know. And now it's just a waste of time. They should have put that in a beginner box and then made the Dungeon Master's Guide these extra rules that I could use. So you're, you're going to have to balance that. Part of the challenge of creating that Dungeon Master's Guide is what to put into it 
what information is better in the Dungeon Master's Guide versus in a supplement or in a book like Cobalt Press's like Cobalt Guide to Monsters or Cobalt's Guide to Adventure or so on that takes an even deeper dive in. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at, like if you look at the, the 5e DMG and you take a step back to the 4e days or the 3e days, you might well have said, you know what we need? We need a DMG that's like the old AD&D. It's just full of ideas, just tables and ideas and, you know, roll through a dungeon that you make as you go and just concepts. And that's kind of what we got. Right. And yet people find reasons to go. Yeah, but it doesn't give me this part. And so a DMG is always going to be a little imperfect. Um, and 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 it is it is hard to think of how much I, I do totally want how to DM advice. Um, and I particularly like what the 4E DMGs provide while also liking that AD&D style. Um, and so, yeah, it is a hard balance. It's, it's, we'll have to see how they do it. And, and, and it's never going to be, I think that's what, one of the hardest things to write is a DMG. Like it doesn't seem like it should be, but, um, mm -hmm. but it is really hard. Yeah. And, and another question is what medium is best for the information that you're trying to get, mm -hmm. get out to people is the how mm. to DM better served through videos now? And you don't have to go through mm. and put it all into 20 pages of text when you could have a, a five 20 minute videos about these different mm. aspects of dungeon mastering. So now that's another thing that we have and to be aware of now is the media we... uh, that we have availability. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That's that's fascinating. And then so, maybe Maybe your DMG needs to be a certain type of book because you know you're going to have how-to things elsewhere. But but I do think that what, where I where I really kind of pin my you know if I could put a pin on a thing, it's that when you are discussing rules, it is good to or when you're laying down sort of the rules, it's good to stop and say, do I need to provide some how to use this additional information? Right? Is there more than what the rules entail? And often on the DMG and DMG side, there is right. So. Yes, here's how you build an encounter, but also here are some things to keep in mind and, and, and when to put that in is, is part of the art of it. Yeah. And maybe putting it in an adventure is the best way to say, here's an adventure and I can really call out then each step in the DMing process of the basics and show it to you, not just through words, but through the actions that you're about to take in front of players. So it's a it's an evolving industry and it's evolving medium that we need to keep in mind. We also have uh, Shamaj22 via YouTube saying D&D influencers might not or should not be held to journalistic standards because they technically aren't journalists, but that doesn't mean their integrity as influencers or celebrities or whatever term fits can't be questioned. So you know, we were talking about people's yeah. reaction to the content creator summit and who, what their responsibility is to hold wizards to a higher standard or, or whatever, uh, and how ridiculous it is to hold them to journalistic standards. And, you know, Shamaji 22, sure. You can totally question anyone's integrity about anything. However, what we're talking about is an actual standard with actual rules that you can point to a tradition that's been around for centuries, which we call journalistic standards. Lawyers have standards, legal standards. Doctors have to take an oath and they have to uphold certain standards. And we know what those things are. We can point to them. We can read them. 
where is the document that tells me about influencer standards? Because until there is such a thing, you can totally judge them and question them, but we we don't have a common document. We don't have a common language that we can look at. So all we're doing is making up our own standards and deciding on our own what integrity means in terms of people who stand up in front of or sit in front of their cameras and and make you know funny or cool or whatever D and D content. Uh, so that's that's all we were talking about is. Unless you have actual standards, then you're just throwing out your opinion about what standards are. And we can't even have a a rational mm. conversation about it, about what influencers should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't be. Yeah. And I think that also ends up happening when someone who could be in the journalist space tries to occupy both spaces, then that puts you into that category. Well, now now we don't know how to you, you aren't you are no longer just serving by that one code right because you are now entering into this other realm that is, that is subject to so many other parameters and, and isn't subject to those other guidelines and the you know if, if you think of someone doing influencing as a side thing that's very different when you try to do that as an actual sort of source of income right that is becomes a very perilous game that's entirely different from being a full-time journalist and and you are now subject to to so many powerful forces right if you want your tweets to be seen you know that the angry ones will get more visibility and if you're trying to get that attention and those eyeballs that's a that's a tough sirens call right um so is writing clickbaity article headlines or any of that right and and everyone has to deal with it right i have to think when i write my blog should I call this 10 ways to, right? Should I say you won't believe, mm -hmm. you know, surprising ways to, you know, those are all, where, what are the, there are no standards, right? They're, they're decisions that individuals who have some level of influence or reach have to think through, but, but there is no standard. Whereas if I worked at a newspaper in a traditional sense, I would have to meet those guidelines, mm -hmm. right? And, and I would lose my job if I failed to, to uphold those. So, you know, again, feel free to judge and debate. Uh, we just can't use a common language because there is no common code of influencers uh, ethics out there. And finally, we have Soto Rumoro via Twitter. One thing that disturbs me with the recent D&D adventures, such as Keys, is overall tone. While well-written on their own, many settings give off a very 19th century modern mood and not medieval and fantasy. I find it compromises my suspension of disbelief. Do other people feel this as well? Well, I have not read Keys from the Golden Vault yet, but I don't believe it was specifically set in any world. It wasn't a Forgotten Realms product i don't think or set in any uh and if it was, was correct me I, I, at okay. least many of the scenarios are i don't know if all of them are but many of the scenarios are are you okay. know you're breaking into forgotten realms locations but, but i haven't looked i have not read it fully either so. yeah. right so it, you know if it was then absolutely right it but if it's not or if it's like you could set this adventure here but otherwise set it anywhere you want you know these 
anthology type products with short adventures, I don't give them any expectations going in. Mm -hmm. I don't expect them to be medieval fantasy. I expect them to do what it is that the book itself tries to do. So I judge it based on the tone of the book. Now we're dealing in this book specifically with heists. And heists are sort of a modern concept in entertainment. It's not that there weren't heisty type things mm -hmm. being written back in the day. Right. But when you think of heists, you think of uh, the... Uh, what's the movie with uh, Ocean's Eleven? Paul Newman. Well, oh, like Ocean's Eleven, but yeah. go going back to the stage. sneakers, any number right. of those, yeah. R right. It, th there's this sort of, and it's all built on overcoming these technological uh, obstacles as well as mm -hmm. going against the status quo, against the police, against the mob, against whatever uniformed po yeah. power structure is uh is in charge so it sort of lends itself to to being a little bit more modern i think otherwise you're just gonna get like sneaking into the orcs cave over right. and over and over again you need that sort of differentiation i think uh but again i haven't hmm. read the book yet so i can't really go any further than that I think that's a good point on on heists and and this book in particular. But but if you look at D and D, you know the very first adventure ever written by TSR is included in in one of the you know small original Dungeons and Dragons booklets that came out for Greyhawk, and it involves you know swarms of frogs under this keep and a uh, a main villain who is from outer space who has power armor and like a laser sword, right? If not a laser gun, I forget. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's 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 melting all these concepts immediately, right? And and those elements have been strong there. The other thing I think is a lot of people. I, for example, I don't want a true medieval game, right? Like I don't want to. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Have too many scenes that are like I don't know people being pelted by tomatoes or things like like I I do want sort of that kind of modern feel, but in that setting. So I think that's actually a thing that a lot mm -hmm. of folks may may actually want. Um, it's hard to, to say. Um, so there's probably a tough line to, to walk, walk there. And for sure, you can reach that point where you go, wait a minute, you know, what what era am I in? This doesn't fit the setting. That, that can certainly happen. It's not that I don't understand. But I think that there may be more play there than one would think as to what the audience wants. Yeah, I the only heist adventure that I remember writing, I made sure I wrote it for Eberron. So there could be that sort of steampunk, magipunk technology available that could model the modern heist themes that we see in our entertainment. It's hard not to. I mean, <laughs> you, you, yeah. you have so many. And the same is true of like the murder mysteries, not that murdering and, and mysterious circumstances were, were not well known. But Agatha Christie comes along and that just becomes such a thing, right? Uh, and the Sherlock Holmes aspect, and it's just, it dominates our thinking today, right? And and anything you write for whichever setting ends up going through that sort of lens, right? Yeah, we're, we're always going to carry back, and even when we write about previous times in our fiction and in our games, we're going to carry back modern sensibilities 
into those old stories. So, yep. Thank you for all the questions. We appreciate Great, it. So. We hope our answers were either illuminating or entertaining, if not both. But we have a lot of news to get to. We have a ton of news starting with the new D&D surveys and playtest videos. So first and foremost, there is a new D&D player survey out that they do, I think, once a year or maybe twice a year. Mm -hmm. And it's similar to the previous ones they've done where they basically ask you what you like about the game. What editions do you play? When was the last time you played? How much money have you spent recently? Do you buy other types of products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This time, though, they had a few little tweaks to questions that uh, I, I know I noticed when I took it, and so did Teo. So I'm going to let him go forward from there. Yeah, there was a lot that was clearly getting at why you would buy official products from a specific website. And gee, which one could they be talking about? It was pretty obvious that they're talking about, you know, what would make you buy from the D&D website versus somewhere else? Um, and so, that, you know, that is a, an area somewhat concerned it's an area to watch because it, it's that dance between supporting stores uh and wanting to not have to pay distributors and resellers so you're making more profit off of your product because losing half of your sale price is rough uh so i certainly get why wizards is, is asking this but it but it does get hard and regarding this they asked you know um a couple of questions that i that you know worry me as to what they mean for aspects that i care about so like they said, quote, digital content is accurate when compared with content in the physical product. All right, and this is the idea that I can do digital updates, but the paper book is still the same. And it, what worries me of this aspect is that we saw with Spelljammer, they just sort of stealth made changes to D&D Beyond that they did not communicate in any way, shape or form. And it took people calling them and say, hey, wait, you just changed the glide distance, you, you know, and rules. And you just changed this other piece. You know, like you've got to give us this. Where's the errata document? Because they used to always put up this errata document. Mm -hmm. um, and they also asked questions like, you know, if we were to give you bonus content, would you come to our, you know, to, the, to a particular website? And, and that's where, you know, like, please don't. You know, it's one thing to have a, a different cover, <laughs> although three covers is way too many. But when you start saying, like, you know, I'm going to give you a special subclass if you buy it from the direct, like, you know, oh. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah, so that I thought that was all really interesting. Yeah. And then they had questions about post pre during pandemic play comparisons, which is interesting, you know, maybe look at sort of are you playing differently? Are you playing less? Things like that. Uh, and there were some things on, you know, the usual mm -hmm. questions of are, do you have this in, in D&D &D Beyond versus do you have it on paper, which are. Always interesting how that might drive decisions at Wizards. For sure. So that's the one survey. The survey about the play test for the Druid and the Paladin is also now up, so you can give your feedback there. And there was a super interesting video with Jeremy Crawford discussing the previous results uh, from the expert play test and the feet play test that came out originally. And then the Druid and Paladin online feedback that they've received so far or that they've scraped off the internet through using their eyes and their research abilities. And I thought this video was awesome. Yeah. I generally skip them or just skim them. But this time I sat and I watched the whole thing because 
finally they were doing, well, Jeremy specifically was doing what I was hoping that they would have been doing all along, which is actually talk about these things, what they're trying to do, why they make the decisions that they make, because it helps me as a game designer figure out what I want to do going forward with my content, with my games. But as a player, it helps me too mm -hmm. to figure out if the direction that they're heading is one that I'm interested in following. So I, I was overjoyed with, with that discussion. Yeah. And, and I mean, I sent a change, maybe this is me imagining this, but it feels like it's a more humble, more, you know, under less marketing to the audience and more understanding the audience kind of video mm -hmm. where, where they're saying, you know, we get how you can react strongly to this, but let's put some context. And so like on the Druid, the idea that the Druid is the least played class in 5e, right? You have to start with that assumption of something about it isn't working for people obviously working for some and we get that you may be very defensive but it's not you know it's there's things that we need to change it right mm -hmm. and so that that helps set the context very strongly and then and then to talk through you know we had been hearing from people what if and i'm, I'm one of those people what if you had like stat block chunks you could work off of rather than having to look through all the monsters and so okay but and then that we hear you that maybe customization of those stat blocks could work or maybe we have to abandon the whole idea and just talking more about those ideas or or that the nuances like sometimes they'll say things and it almost sounds like they're talking down to you you know like like well some dms don't know how to use monsters properly so we simplified them for you so you wouldn't be an idiot but this was more like there are nuances to the druid because we have had things in the rules glossary that allow your form to actually be more powerful than it was before and it may not be transparent to people that these forms are pretty strong which also means that if we make it tiny, it's now this super powerful tiny thing, and that could be abusive given the other rules of the game. So, you know, that was a lot of really great context. And I agree with you. I, I, I watched this video while I was on the treadmill, and I mean, I almost fell off because I was like, oh, this is really good. And like, I'm having trouble paying attention to my feet yeah. because this is so <laughs> engrossing and interesting. And so, yeah, hats off to the team. I was really glad to see this video uh, come out that way. And they also talked about the expert classes, right? I thought that was interesting too. It was good. Yeah. What was so interesting about that was how each individual trait of a class would get a score that was higher than the score that was given to the class as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then they would have to go back and they would have to read the actual written comments to see why is everything... 75 or higher but that the class itself was only a 68 yeah and being able to parse that and get those comments and seeing a trend of oh and it what it generally came down to was they took something out that everyone wanted put back in i uh, can't sneak attack which, which is yeah which is which is good right that's good feedback and it's good to have that, it does scare me a bit that since this is so close to 5e, that people can't play test this other thing as its own thing yeah. without referring back. And if all you're doing is adding better things, mm -hmm. adding better traits, adding more powerful traits, and taking something out to do so, and then having to go back and put that 
thing that's also powerful back in and yet keep the other powerful things that you've added, it scares me that there is this power yeah. trend upward. Yeah, so, and even in I, one of our previous videos. Even even knowing that is important. Yeah, and in one of the previous videos, they said something like, you know, like, oh, you might be concerned that the paladin's getting too strong. Don't worry, we're going to make up for it in, in monster design. And I'm like, ooh, I'm a little worried about that statement. Um, yeah, it, it's it's the other thing that I thought of specifically around the rogue. So they said on the rogue, you know, like we've, one of those examples, like you said, of like we got negative results uh, on sneak attack. And it's because you can't sneak attack off turn. And I'm thinking that's a thing that fairly expert players catch on to. Casual player mm -hmm. won't even know that that's a thing and won't see it as necessary to their enjoyment of the game right so it, it further says to me you're getting a lot of feedback from the really invested players rather than casual players yeah. that are making up the bulk of your audience or likely are right because that's how rpgs work historically right. probably still today and so you know you're not getting to yeah. the random gaming store the random groups uh, at homes and things like that um right and, and you want that feedback because, yeah, it's that idea that can someone look at this with new eyes, with casual eyes, and just say, this is totally great. I love this. You know, this is the kind of game I want to start playing and, and become mm -hmm. a, a, a player for the next 30 years, but I'm new today, right? Does it appeal to them? Or are you only appealing to people who've been around for a long time? And it's important to point out that what Jeremy said was the reason they took out the ability to sneak attack on off turns is because they want play to go faster. And and that's that's the that's the funny part is is people always say, well, you know, I, this combat takes so long. Why does combat can you speed up combat but don't take away the, all the things that make combat look, go long because that's more powerful. And I love so that. Yeah. It's important for the people. Yeah, it's important for the people out there who are asking for both to hear that and to to maybe even understand a smidge of game design. And why these things are <laughs> offsetting, why doing yeah. one makes it impossible to do the other or makes it very, very hard to do the other. I mean, I think I've told this story before on the show, but humans, we are so frail. I mean, I was at a table in late 4E where everybody began to interrupt this monster mm -hmm. moving and every single character interrupted. And halfway through, the DM said, please only do this if it's meaningful. And everyone kept on taking an interrupt, even though many of them had no real effect. Like it was not necessary. And the DM kept coming down this and everybody still did it. And it was just so hilarious that nobody could restrain themselves because they wanted to do their thing. And that's the thing is we all want those things, but the things are bad for us overall. And we'd all be happier if we didn't have them, but having them is hard, not using them is very hard and, and losing them is hard. And that's what we see yeah. in some of these surveys, but, but sometimes they need to go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So many times, the same thing with if you put in more, more steps in the action economy, right? Mm -hmm. We have a bonus action and a quick, we're going to add a quick action to this mm -hmm. game. Okay. And then everyone is just, okay, I did my bonus. I did my action. Now I have to do use my quick action. I have to use my quick action. What can I do? And you're hunting through your character sheet and hunting through the books for the thing that you can do with your quick action. And it just slows the game down so dramatically. Uh, but we, we as gamers, we as humans don't want to waste that, right? So uh -huh. you're absolutely right. Uh, but 
we can all rest easily because there is a D and D old spice old spice commercial. Uh, I did not see the D and D old oh. spice commercials oh, because I don't watch commercials. But uh, I may have to hunt this out. Tell me about the these the commercial. Well, Sean, I put a link in the snow, show in the snow notes. We can't speak today, but there is a link in the show notes. Snow notes. Um, right. Right it on. is Holga and Simon from the movie uh, have completed a quest, and they've got a chest of Old Spice. And of course, at the end, it's a mimic, so I've spoiled the commercial for you, but it's pretty funny. And I think they called it like Elden Spice or Olden Spice or something. And you know, I watched it, I enjoyed it. I thought, okay, it's so cool that we are getting these kinds of commercials, but it didn't get close to the hallowed uh, branded baloney level because there isn't actually any D&D version of Old Spice available on shelves. If there were, I'm, you know, I would have to debate whether this reached baloney levels of, of the height of D&D, but, uh, but we're close. We're scratching at it. You know, this is okay. yet another gain because, I mean, that's a major brand, right? Old Spice. And if we just had a D&D version on every supermarket, that would be, uh, that would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But close, but no cigar. I, I, I did see a link to D and D branded coffee. Yeah, uh, but but that's a small but company again. That, it, that doesn't wake me up uh, when it's Folgers, right? Yeah. Like exactly. Folgers exactly, mimic exactly, brew, yeah. and I'm there. I'm I'm baloney levels mm-hmm. granted, but we're not there. I'm hoping. I'm counting yeah. on this movie to take us there, Sean. We have not yet hit baloney level. But is the commercial better than the movie? Because there are sneak previews out there. Teos saw the movie. He's not going to spoil it because I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Critical Role bought fans tickets for an April 22nd showing in several major cities. Is it April or, or March? Oh, that, that must be March. That's yeah, March. Yep. Okay. A March 22nd showing. I, think I was going to say, I that's not a preview then i assumed uh, it's gone already because there uh, is yeah just yeah okay yep well if you were one of those critical role uh fans that got a to see the movie early that would have been two days from now but one day after the show came out or one day before the show came out so let us know but there is another preview that is available on march 26th so Maybe you can get to that. I have my tickets purchased already with my gaming group and a whole bunch of Uh others for March 31st. So that is the day that I will see it and not a second earlier. I am amazed that your friends have not been banned from the local movie theater. So that's good news. I think we're going to sneak in under assumed identities. (laughs) But... Before we talk about the movie, we need to talk about Shadow of the Weird Wizard. So a few episodes ago, we covered Shadow of the Demon Lord, and a couple listeners commented that we could have discussed the less gory and less horror-tinged variant of the game, which is called Shadow of the Weird Wizard. And Rob Schwalb is currently working on this variant and he posted an update very recently on where he stands with Weird Wizard. Um, he talks about the game, talks about an upcoming crowdfunding campaign. And there is a link in the show notes that talks about all of that. But there's a reason why Shadow of the Demon Lord was one of the was the first game that we covered, because we think it's so good. We think it's very solid and fun to play. So 
I personally am looking forward to where where we go with the Shadow of the Weird Wizard. Yeah, absolutely. And we can also get D&D action figures, apparently. Uh, the company Super 7 is creating action figures from classic D&D covers, including the Afrit from the from the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, the characters from the Purple Basic Box Set, and the Gith Yankee from the Fiend Folio. These are $20 each and can be, can be pre-ordered now, uh, releasing in July. Yeah, and if you do not have a There's partner a in your life, in show notes for that. nothing attracts a partner like having them still in box displayed proudly on your shelves. Uh, so says Teos. <laughs> so says Teos. And he would, he would not lie to anyone out there because of his influencer ethics uh, <laughs> agreement that he signed. Yeah, yeah. The school I went to the but, school of influencer ethics. Yep. It was, um, no. Did you? Duke, Ooh. the Duke School of Influencer <laughs> Ethics. I got a uh, master's in influencer ethics. It's, yep, it's in a ba- subway bathroom just off campus. Uh and last but not least, there are still a couple of Kickstarters in progress that we are following, uh, including the Acquisitions Incorporated Series 2 Kickstarter. Still got a couple weeks left, so you can still check that out. And the Forge of Foes Kickstarter that was worked on by one Teos Abadia, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, and Mike Sly Flourish Shea. Yeah, is and, starting to wind down. So you yeah. only have a couple days once the show drops, I think. Yeah, I think it'll be about a week, um, but uh, it, it ends on the end of March. So you've got the month. But uh, we just made an announcement that some of the Forge of Foes is going to go to the Creative Commons. So that may be of interest to some folks as well, because it means that as a designer, you can use some of the concepts that are in the book, uh, including a lot of the cool tables and some of the monster powers and things like that. So. Awesome. We will keep our finger on the pulse of the forge. And now on to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to check out yet another role-playing game that is not D&D. We are doing this because as much as we love D&D as a brand and as a lifestyle and as a game, we love 5e, but we want to understand where D&D and 5e sits in the realm of all role-playing games. So we will continue our look at these other games. And we're doing so with the understanding that D&D is a very different game than some, but taking the cool mechanics, trying to plug them into D&D may not work, but at least getting an idea of what sorts of mechanics are out there may help you understand and appreciate the mechanics of D&D even more. And what are we looking at this week, Teos? Ooh, we are looking at 13th Age. This is a fantastic game. I'm a huge fan of 13th Age. I'm a huge fan of Rob Heinsu. Uh, I first met him during the 4th edition days, and then I had the pleasure of having him as DM for a 13th Age game. He is one of the finest DMs you can find out there. And he is, is probably, like, when I think of Devils, I think of him running a game because he will offer you these bargains and his eyes basically glow with fire when he he's like, you know, I tell you what you could do. And he just like he gets this like super happiness and you're like, oh, God, you know, what is this offer? And it's, it's always this, you know, if you did the following. Oh, man. And, and he has a happiness when he does that. That's infectious. 
And that kind of approach is some of the, the special sauce that gets woven into this game. And, and it was fun to read, like, you know, rereading the book and looking at the beginning of it. And I should say, you know, one of the covers looks like this. Um, looking at this book, um, the beginning of it talks about a couple, and, and a lot of the marketing initially did sort of two things. Like, this is an homage to third and fourth edition. We can talk about why. Uh, and then the idea of bringing in story-centric games. Uh, they mentioned things like Vampire, but just the, the idea of these games that are outside of D&D that have a much stronger, what would your character do? What dramatic tension can we create in this game? How do we resolve that? How does the DM you know, shape their story around the character in a way that didn't exist at the, you know, during 4E or D&D? Yep, and when you play it or when you read it, you can definitely see the homages to D the D&D and the influence of those. Uh, one of the reasons we talked about fate so early was because a lot of the things that we see in games that try to bring in the role-playing, narrative-driven aspect of these games is available to you in fate and have been borrowed. So as we talk about this, you'll you'll see... Uh, all of these games being brought in. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about first 2E versus 1E because there is a second edition being created right now. And the uh, the playtest is out, right? Yeah. You can well, playtest 2E right now. You can sign up for it and they'll send it to you via email. So you, you can go to the Pelgrane Press website uh, or if you go to Rob Heinsu's blog, you can get it from there. There are links in our show notes to where you can do it. You basically send an email saying, I would like to play test with my group. And then they send it out to you uh, so that you can run play tests off mm -hmm. of the play test versions. Yep. So who were the designers on this? The main designers were Rob Heinsu, as Teo said, and Jonathan Tweet. Both of these uh, gentlemen were designers, lead designers for 3E and 4E. And they also worked on games like Feng Shui, uh, Rob did. Rob designed the Three Dragon Ante and Epic Spell Wars card games. Uh, many other board games, card games, and miniature games. Uh, Jonathan Tweet worked on Ars Magica, Over the Edge, the revised uh, Talislanta game, several miniature and card games. Many of his role-playing games were light on the rules and heavy on storytelling. So the two of them working together are an interesting pair mm -hmm. and they're good friends. And in the book itself, they have sidebars where the two of them will give their feedback or their thoughts on a certain rule, a certain way to play. And sometimes they're, they're different. Sometimes they yeah. even disagree with each other almost. Uh, which is fascinating for game masters to see that even the designers of the game may run a game differently than, you know, than the game itself might play. Yeah, I really love that. Throughout this book, just these comments are great. And they can be like, you know, I have this tip and you have this tip. You know, Rob has a tip. Jonathan has a tip. But it can also be that real like, in my game, I don't tend to love this kind of thing. So here's the way I run with this, right? And and we'll talk about the icons. They've got a neat example around icons that maybe we can go back and talk about how they how they present that 
there. Yep. Well, so talking about icons, the first thing the book covers in detail isn't the rules, isn't creating your character. It's talking about icons. And I'm going to read a little bit from the book here. Most D20 games have powerful NPCs who shape the world behind the scenes. 13th Age brings them forward, making these 13 powerful NPCs into icons that the PCs will aid or oppose over the course of each campaign. So right off the bat, this being in the front of the book tells you that this game wants you as the DM and the player to focus more on the story and these larger-than-life aspects of the world, mm -hmm. which you can tailor as the game master. And notice I said aspects. Aspects, I saw that. Because I that, that is a fate. That that is a fate term that uh, you know becomes mm -hmm. important for gameplay and world building. So, wh and what, what do you also, have to say about these icons? Yeah, it also reflects sort of the vampire clans, and there are some parts where, where I think I forget if it's Jonathan or Rob, but they 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 specifically sort of say like clans in certain games, right? And they're talking about you know whether you're part of this family or that family of vampires and in, in, in vampire. Uh, but but the the icons are great. So you have things like the Dwarf King, the Emperor of like the human lands, the Orc Lord, the Lich King, the Prince of Shadows, the High Druid, the Great Gold Worm. And each one gets a page. Uh, they have a symbol, so an actual icon for the icon. They have uh, a quote. So like the High Druid says, there's a place for your roads and your cities hunched tight to the shores of that fangless thing you still call a sea. Right. Just and so just steeps mm -hmm. you in that where they can be found in the world. And there is a map and a setting that that comes here that you can use. Um, and, and so they, they tell you, you know, what places are they found in um, common knowledge that's out there? What how adventurers relate to them, their allies and enemies, their history. And then one of my favorite things is this thing called the true danger, which basically is. You know, the world would unravel if the following happened around this icon, right? So, like, if this one icon didn't have a thing to fight, that would unravel things, right? Um, and so, and so, you know, if, if, if every, like, everything will be all right unless the Emperor and the High Druid truly go to war, right? So, so it, it tells you about those important tensions that exist in the game and gives you a feel for that drama. And the whole idea of this is your players... Uh, have an immediate stake in the game. The way we talked about with Fate, right? Well, when you're designing the aspects for the campaign, well, here you're not designing these, but you are choosing which ones to put front and center through your alignment with them, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can say that your big concern is the Lich King uh, and that you once made a deal with entities of the uh, allies of the Prince of Shadows, right? And that, that lends color to the game and drives the way things can develop. And in a lot of these games that we have been or will be talking about, there's a concept called fronts. Mm. Fronts are the larger parts, the larger threats in the world. And the, the front is what it is and what it's trying to do. But what comes from that is what you can present and put in front of the players. And these fronts can change based on how the characters are dealing with the things that are in front of them. And so these icons are fronts mm -hmm. because Teo said, you know, what would the worst possible scenario be if something happened to the 
dwarf king or the elf queen. And those are like the final steps of the, these fronts. Yeah. And one of the ideas of it being called 13th age is that there have been previous ages. And at some point, the 14th could come into play. Mm -hmm. And so you can decide, you know, which of those things could propel towards that if you so want to do. Yep. So in a good storytelling game, you have these large concepts, but then you also have to relate them to the characters or the characters won't care as much. And so what 13th Age does is it gives you relationships to the icons. So at first level, you get three relationship points and you can put those points into relationships with the icon. These can be positive negative or conflicted relationships mm -hmm. and you get dice for each of them at the beginning of a session or an adventure you can roll those dice and if a five and a six come up that means that the story that you're about to play is going to be affected by that relationship in some way so there's this storytelling impetus based on the die roll that you have set in motion because of your relationship yeah and like i played a game with rob and the first thing rob did is he had us all roll these dice to see what relationships activated and one of my friends was playing a diabolist related character and a sort of tiefling type concept and he rolled three sixes <laughs> So, so Rob's eyes glow and, and, and Rob, of course, is just completely improvising this session. Right. And he just immediately goes, oh, well, everybody, you know, forget about it. This is an adventure about the diabolists. On we go and begins to weave the tale accordingly. Right. I mean, and, and, and of course, not everybody is that kind of a DM. I am not. Uh, that is a level of improvisation that, that scares me a bit, um, though I aspire to get better at that. Um, but I, I do take these things uh, with a little bit of pre-planning and love nudging the story in these directions. And I'm significantly nudges, right? And this is right from the beginning you're doing that, right? Which is really cool. So we have the, the larger scale story, the characters defined by their relationships to them. And then, now we get into the character building. So and, we and have your typical there, race. You have your typical class. Oh, you sure can? Yeah, I just want to say that conflicted is interesting because it sort of suggests that something happened with this entity that uh, they may support or destroy you depending on the situation. So it's very like movie novelish, right? Where you have mm -hmm. this person that that you walk in to make a deal. Yeah, I know the so-and-so, the dwarves, and but the dwarves may tear you limb from limb or they may grant you what you want it, it, it either way can go because of your interesting relationship in the past and that one's a lot of fun too instead of just saying that there's some like neutral sure. right it's not neutral it's conflicted i think that's so cool yep uh so then we get into what i call 4e territory uh so we get the races and the classes and it's very similar to 4e 3e it's very recognizable your typical attributes, how you get those attributes. Um, for, for 4E, there were healing surges and they have recoveries in 13th age, which are very similar. Uh, you, so you get through that part, which is very D&D. &D, and then you get to the one unique thing. 
you create one unique thing about your character. Each character should have one unique feature you invent for him or her when you create the character. Your one unique thing is an unusual trait that sets your character apart from every other hero. The moment when all the players sit down together with the GM to create their characters, one unique thing is often the moment when a campaign comes to life. If you listen to our fate episode, this is your high concept. Yeah. This is what you are all about. And they can be really wild, right? And, and they can be more wild than uh, they are in fate. Um, though, you know, depends mm -hmm. on the setting for fate, but, but some of the examples in the book, right? I am a deathless pirate whose soul is trapped in a gem controlled by the blue dragon. Or I am the reincarnation of an ancient icon. I don't know which yet. Or I was the rudest lady in waiting of the imperial court. And so, you know, there are some things here that are that are like, you know, when you first see them, you're like, whoa, this is, you know, wild. What are the constraints of this? And fortunately, there is a lot of advice in the book, uh, in this section and even elsewhere on it, including this kind of designer talk. And one of my favorite parts is is where Jonathan will says, you know, I don't tend to love really wild things like I am a living zombie. Uh, I tend to love things that are more like I'm the best at swordplay in the land, right? Whereas Rob likes pretty wild things and he talks about what he does with those. And then they give you these concepts of like, let's say that you did, your character does say I'm the best at swordplay in the land. Cool. That doesn't mean you win at everything because that kind of to make this dramatic and interesting, let's talk about what might prevent you from realizing your full uh, capabilities now. Right. You know, what is it that is dampening your skills now? Maybe you have grief over something you lost and and working on that together, you start getting into these campaign seeds and it feels more like those fate aspects. Right. Maybe you're living undead, but your appearance is cloaked by illusion so that it's not too wild and destructive to play in a city campaign. Right. So that that's the kind of thing that you can right. do to weave these concepts so that they're really rich and interesting, but they're balanced. They're not breaking things. Right. And where this comes to bear for me is the the difference between a very highly transactional, mm -hmm. right, you roll every to hit, and trying to insert these more narrative things is a great idea. It's a great concept. But how does it actually play at the table? when you're rolling dice and making decisions, is there a mechanic that refers back to it? Is there mm -hmm. a mechanic that actually ties to it or is it separated? And the more technically, the, the more mathematical, uh, mechanical the game is, the less likely it is to do that well or the less likely it is to do that closely. And what 13th Age does is it removes skills from the game and adds instead these backgrounds. So what you get is you get a certain number of skill points, usually eight that you can assign to these different backgrounds and you can go up to a plus five with each background you choose. And these are sort of smaller aspects from mm -hmm. fate with a description of who you are, what you can do. So instead of saying, oh, well, I am trained in 
lock picking. So I, you, you know, I look at my dexterity and I look at my whatever proficiency bonus or whatever you do uh, in the game that you're playing. This is, I use that bonus if I am a master lock picker mm-hmm. or a trained cat burglar right. or whatever you or a locksmith there. if you were legit, so right? You can or, or or a locksmith or whatever. And these can be vague or very specific. They can be used in different ways as well. So if you can come up with something that might have a broad use. You can probably get more out of it than it, than very specific, but they go through in the book and give you sort of advice on creating them and using them. That is fairly solid. Yeah, and and it's nice because these backgrounds mean that that they're they give you suggested ones, you know, so you can certainly choose from them, but you can just make your own. So you can through the combination of one unique thing, one unique thing, and a few backgrounds that you're choosing to have, you really very quickly have a super rich concept in your mind and and you should be doing this at the table to everybody else so everybody ends up with really rich concepts and like i still remember uh one unique things from convention games right i remember what Mm -hmm. most if not most if not all the table most of the table had at these games because they're they can be so rich and and wild right so like one of my favorites was uh, someone who said that they'd been in love with a dryad, but they decided that they they could not just live by the side of this tree forever. So they they said they had to leave, and the dryad cursed this person so that the uh, whenever they stopped, the roots would begin to grow from their feet. All right, that was their one unique mm-hmm. thing. So and then in the fight we were doing, he ended up knocked prone, and so the DM decided that all these roots started growing out around him. And we had to hack him out, right? <laughs> and those are those kinds of balances where it becomes much more narrative and it's DM judgment and it's, you know, and that kind of thing. And you, a little bit like Mike Olson said in our interview, right, you have to, you have to want to do these kinds of games, right? You have to want this a little more, less of the, you, you know, you want to work together and think through these things and enjoy that drama of it versus, wait, you prevented me from doing what I wanted on my turn or, you know, that kind of. Yeah. <laughs> So all that storytelling, narrative-driven gameplay does come in here and marries itself to a more R-O-L-L play (laughs) game that is a mix of fourth and third edition. Yeah. Another mechanic that they've added is called the Escalation Die. So this is something that I'm going to let Teos talk about, but it's an interesting concept. And I want to hear how Teos describes it before I say anything else. (laughs) Sure. So, so what this is, is at the start of, so you use normal kind of what you'd say D and D initiative, right? Like it's basically your, you know, D20 role plus your decks type thing. And you're going round and round a turn at a time and, and your order is your order. But at the start of the second round of combat, the DM puts out D6 and you want like the biggest, coolest looking die you can get and that is the escalation die and on round two it's set to one and this means all the pcs gain a plus one to attack rolls equal to the die and each round thereafter it ratchets up until you can reach that maximum of plus six and this seems really bizarre when you first start playing but it means that your fights can start hard 
and then they get easier as the characters start hitting all the time. And it drives tactical choices. So it's things like, you know, I've got this really big power I want to use because it's sort of 4E style powers. Do I want to use my really cool ability or do I want to save that for later on when I get a plus to its attack, right? Um, monsters usually don't get this bonus. Sometimes they do. But a number of things can trigger off of it in the game. So there can be some things that if the escalation die is a three or higher, then this power gains an extra benefit or this monster might behave a certain way. Um, so, so things can play off of it in a very interesting way. And what I see it doing is it keeps combat shorter. Uh, it keeps combat fluid from one encounter to the next. It lets you as DM hit really hard initially, but characters are sort of going to overcome and gain victory uh, if, if, the, you know, if it's that kind of balanced encounter. Um, yeah, so I, I like it a fair bit, and, and I've seen DMs use it in D&D games as a mechanic they, they port into their D&D games. What do you think? Right. Yeah, I think you pretty much summed up what I was going to say. It gives a mechanic that makes combat different from encounter to encounter rather than having the same old thing happen. One example right from the barbarian, the first class they write about is if you get a certain number of rages, right? But if you wait until the escalation die reaches a certain number, you get to rage and it doesn't cost you a rage. Mm -hmm. So it, that would reward you for waiting a bit rather than the first thing that every barbarian does is, okay, I use a bonus action and I rage. And I, I happens every table like as a barbarian sometimes i've found that you know i wait a couple of rounds and i'm like oh this is sort of hard i should have raged but if i rage now i'm only getting like two rounds of benefit for it so i guess i'll wait but i mm -hmm. if i were really playing my character i would rage right now because this requires you know and that's when when you get this benefit makes up for that right like oh it's okay if you decide to do it late and like some things might be you can only use this sort of thing on an even die number or an odd die number so it keeps players from being able to just do the same thing over and over again um which helps eliminate the problem if you're if your players are min maxers and and it, that takes away from someone's fun at the table or makes you think outside the they just what's the best thing I can do right now? It it breaks that up. It breaks up You're that right. monotony of oh here we go again. Um, it's going to be the same thing over and over. So if you like a tactical game, but you also like a little bit of randomness or a little bit of diversity in the action economy that you see, then this die is a great way to break that up. And it's you kind of mentioned the odd even thing, and it's worth noting that a number like in general, the classes feel very four ish with a touch of three probably here and there and some other editions. But but it, it they, you know, you have powers that work like they do in fourth edition um, and, and your spells feel like powers more than traditional spells. Uh, but they have these chaotic elements to them. So like, you know, you're catching you're casting uh, you know, a lightning fork. And if you make a natural even attack roll, right? So the D20 result is even. 
you can attack an additional target with the spell, right? And that's that, like you're saying, it breaks mm -hmm. up that optimization a bit because you don't always know what will happen as a result of it. And the game feels a little less predictable. And a lot of the abilities have these sort of things that, you know, well, on an even or on an odd, something different might happen. It's kind of cool. And, and, and also and just what's the, the deal game with... has this tactical, it does still have this tactical feel to it, right? Which is fascinating. It has this sort of like, uh, now they don't, they don't uh, want to hang their hat on minis. So unlike 4E, which was very like segmented, they sort of have these more rough concepts of distance and things that are, that are kind of nice. But, mm -hmm. but it does have this idea of, you know, I want to use my big attack and I, and I want to tear down these minions and things like that, um, that give you that sort of D&D feeling around this narrative story. It's, it's a really interesting pairing. Mm -hmm. I, I made a Seinfeld reference before we started recording, but I'm about to make another one. What's the deal with monsters in 13th Age? <laughs> yeah, I like monsters. So they're on one hand, they tend to be simpler than, certainly simpler than a fourth edition monster, but they tend to have like a cool power-like power thing, a descriptive thing they do that's neat, that's very like, feels like this monster, right? Uh, it'll show the tenacity of the orc, or it shows, you know, the way that the, the ooze can envelop you or tear away, you know, your your armor or something like that. Uh, but then in the later books, like there's a, there are additional, you know, there are lots of, this book is worth saying is well-supported, lots of supplements, lots of adventures, all kinds of content you can find on the Pelgrane press site. And the monsters start having things like what they'll call nastier specials. And it's 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 again speaks to the idea of hey you DM play with this right so monsters may have variants so they may say like you know the ooze might have this thing or that thing or the other thing so you get to choose what your monster looks like a bit and then they'll say and nastier specials right when this monster is meant to feel a little more like a significant threat like a boss like a named version of it or something like that then you can add this power to it and make it nastier in this way, make these changes. And, the, and the, the fact that they're recommendations rather than like say fourth edition, which would have like, you know, goblin skirmisher, goblin boss, right? It's not that they're just saying, hey, play with it, make these changes to your monster when you want this kind of a feeling. And I, I think that's a really neat approach that speaks to the, the aspect of what they want their game to feel like, right? So overall, would you say 13th Age is a, a good, at least beginning attempt to meld a more narrative storytelling driven game and a more mechanical dice-based role-based game into the same game while still keeping the mechanical strategy portion of the game intact. Yeah, I would. Um, and I think that can, you can, that can apply in a number of ways, meaning like if all you've ever played is D and D, you want a little more, narrative angle it's a neat way to do that or if you like playing both games this is a way that can that can be an in-between that makes you happy right and so i've seen players in both of those situations really enjoy 13th age and we will continue to look at games to see this variation on themes a variation on styles and you can get 13th age right now directly from Pelgrane Press at pelgranepress.com slash 13th-age. It's also on DriveThruRPG. There is an SRD for the game, and you can also sign up for that playtest that we talked about for the second edition of 13th Age. 
Uh, anything else you want to mention before we close? Yeah, it's great. Great game. All right. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise on this. I've only played 13th Age twice, but I enjoyed it both times. And thank you to our patrons for keeping these lights on. Thank you to all our listeners. But for our Master of Dungeon supporters, we give you a special thanks. We give a special shout out to our Master of Realms subscribers in our show notes. And to our Masters of the Multiverse, well, this one's for you. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Krishnan, I'm not going to Simone say it again, Joe Tyler, Matthias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you all for your support. If you like the show, please do consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. You can also leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you are listening to this podcast. Give us a review so other people know what we're doing here. Teos, you've got new stuff up on your blog, I know. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, head over to alphastream.org where you can find my thoughts on compatibility and 1D&D and how good or bad it is to be compatible with the previous slash current edition. How about okay. you? Where, where we else can you? we find you? Oh, you can find me on Mastodon. Oh, me? Oh, I'm I'm right here. I'm right here. On Twitter at Sean Murrow, and the podcast is on Twitter at Mastering DND. Podcast is on Mastodon at Dice Camp, and I'm at Mastodon at Tabletop Social. Uh, and you can, of course, find us on our Patreon and also on YouTube, where you can leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. Woo. So we have made it out of the 13th age, and we are heading toward the 14th age. So what are we going to do now? Uh, well, we're going to reveal that I actually have a very strong relationship with the Dwarf King. Uh, and that's why I tend to go outside mm. and hammer things all the time. Uh, hammer time. Yes, I, I, have a, uh, I have a strong relationship with the halfling uh, thief because of my hairy toes. <laughs>